Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today's episode is a remarkable one. We're going to chronicle the life of Murray County's highest-ranking military officer. Lieutenant General Spence Armstrong descends from one of the county's oldest families. Born and raised in Mount Pleasant, he went on to a stellar military career, which began at the United States Naval Academy, before transferring to the Air Force to become a pilot. An aerospace engineer and test pilot by the time of the Vietnam War, General Armstrong flew 100 combat missions in F-105 Thunder Chiefs in Southeast Asia, between 1967 and 1968. Moving through the ranks, his commands took him around the world and across the United States and even to the stars as Deputy Director of Space Systems and Command, Control, and Communications. He retired from the Air Force as a Lieutenant General in 1990. General Armstrong spent 11 more years as a Senior Executive at NASA, leading the agency's human resources efforts and programs with academia. Joining me in the studio today is my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe. Good morning, morning. Barry. Good morning, Tom. And together we are joined via telephone from his home in Virginia by retired Lieutenant General Spence Armstrong. General Armstrong, welcome to History's Hook. Okay, Tom. I'll be happy to talk with you guys to start off. You were born in Mount Pleasant in 1934. What was Mount Pleasant like for you growing up there in the 1930s and 40s? What are your impressions? What do you remember? Well, actually, I was born in the hospital in Columbia. I went to school in Mount Pleasant because it was closer, and I rode my bike three miles to school until I was old enough, or my brother was old enough to have a driver's license and drive the family there. Uh, But I did not, uh, uh, I've always listed Columbia as my uh, home address because that's where the mail address was. Okay. Did you come from a large family? Well, I had an older brother, uh, Ed, who was two and a half years older, who uh, graduated from Haylong and went to Vanderbilt and went to med school. And uh, when in 1953, he was on his way back from Alabama to go to uh, the hospital for some rounds and apparently fell asleep on the wheel and ran into the only abutment on the side of the road from uh, uh Spring Hill to Franklin and was killed. Hmm. So that was in 1953. Then I have a younger brother by the name of Frierson that, that picked up the name uh, Shine because we used to pick fun at him during World War II and called him Swine, and my younger sister couldn't say that, so she said Shine. <laughs> and most of the people around, he, he lives in Lawrenceburg now with his family. Okay. And then I've got... Uh, Adeline, who's ten, who's eight years younger, that uh, lives in Franklin, Tennessee, and Adeline, my sister, who's ten years younger, whose husband was a professor at North Carolina State, retired now, and they live in Raleigh. So that's that's the size of the 
of the Armstrong uh, family from a, a sibling standpoint. The Armstrong family is a well-known one with deep roots in Murray County, coming as part of the Zion settlement uh, at the very earliest formation of the county, 1806 and 1807. Uh, were, you, were you aware of those roots growing up here in Murray County? Well, I was. I was. And we, uh, my whole life, uh, revolved around Zion Church, because that's where the Armstrongs and a few other families came from South Carolina and set up there in, in 1807 or so forth. And so I knew that. And uh, when I was uh, when I was growing up, and people would ask my name, and I would say Armstrong, and and if they said we don't know that name, and I figured out well they're either new around here, they must be new around here because the Armstrongs are fairly well known. Right. Tell tell us a little bit about your your parents. Uh, they seem like interesting individuals. Your father was in the Navy during World War One. My father uh, was in the Navy in World War One. He was born in 1891, and in 1893, my grandfather, who was the biggest mule trader in the county, uh, bought the property that was known as Cherry Glen, about 395 acres, half of it uh, down towards Ridley, and the other half being across from St. John's Church. And so he had two sisters. My father had three sisters, two of which uh, died shortly after they were well, they died in, in, as when they were teenagers from Bryce disease. And then he had another sister who was born, and his mother died in childbirth. And so they gave the daughter, whose name was uh, Aline, Adeline, to an uncle, the, the, uh, the Frierson's, who lived down, of course, uh, down towards Hampshire. And they, ra- and they raised her. And so uh, they had three three daughters, and uh, they were the Queeners. They married uh, Millard Queener, who was a lawyer there in uh, in Columbia. And so of, of the, the daughters who were our first cousins, Aline was the oldest, and she's married Jack Massey in Nashville and since passed away. Lucille was the middle one, and she married Robert Courtney, and both of those have passed on. And then Elizabeth, who is still alive, I guess, because you've talked to her. But uh, we didn't get to see much of them as we were growing up because they lived down towards uh, Hampshire, and we were at home. So you, your father, uh, again, in, in the Navy in World War One, and then through most of his life, a farmer. But he was something of an entrepreneur, it sounds like. He, he had his hands in a number of business dealings. Well, he did. And he, uh, he went to Vanderbilt, and they got there. They told, he graduated from CMA. And he went to Vanderbilt, and they told me he needed to take an exam. And he didn't want to do that, so he got on a, put his trunk on the train and went to Swanee. And they let his dad know later on that he was at Swanee. He wasn't at uh, Vanderbilt. And he stayed there three years and then finished and did a number of things. Uh, ran the farm. He worked. He went to St. Louis for a year and traded on the stock exchange. Went to uh, Texas. Uh, to work in sawmills just to see if he could. And uh, one year he managed, as a favor, he managed the farm, which at the time was, the, we called it the chair's place, but now I guess it's called uh, Ripa, what's it called now? Ripa Villa. Ripa Villa, yeah. So I remember we used to go by there and he told us about his time that he had spent there. And then he, he got a commission in the, in the Navy, uh, the congressman, that they knew got a commission in the Navy and the Supply Corps 
but he had offered him a commission in the fledgling uh, Air Force to go with join the French, and he didn't take it. And I later said to him, why didn't you do that? He said he didn't want to do that. So he <laughs> he went to an ensign in the Navy for one year, and he was a supply officer and the paymaster on a converted uh, freighter, the USS Texan, where he was the only he was the only mili- he was the only naval officer. So he was uh, uh, responsible for all the, the pay and the and the supplies and so forth. And they made four transatlantic crossings. And as he told me, they screwed up at least one thing every time. And, and when they, I asked him one day, why didn't you stay in the Navy? He said, son, I didn't know what I was doing. And it was just a matter of time before they caught me. <laughs> so he, after that, he did a few things. And then he married my mother, who was, uh, I think, a, 14th cousin who was a school teacher and uh, they were married in 1930 and my brother was born in 31 and I was born in 34 so he he, he was a farmer stayed there all the time and uh, he used to go to Nashville catch the bus to Nashville to train to trade on commodities that was what he liked to do but he never worked he was a he was a supervisor but he never worked he, he never raked a leaf he never did anything like that although he insisted that his boys did <laughs> you graduated from Haylong high school in 1951 what kind of student were you i was a salutatorian you were i was i was a good student annie evelyn cecil was uh, the valedictorian in fact of the five of us who went to Haylong. Mary Houston was the only one that was a valedictorian. The rest of us were all always runners of them. <laughs> Still pretty good. You settled on Vanderbilt yeah. University as your school of choice. What what made you think about Vanderbilt? Well, the story is that I've been. This is the fall of 1950. The Korean War had just started. Uh, the draft was was wild. I was playing football at Halo. Not a very good player or not a very good team. I had an old beat up car that I'd gotten. And I had a girlfriend, and so life was good. And one day at the dinner table, my dad says, have you been thinking about where you want to go to school? I said, no, sir. He said, well, he said, your brother's is bad, but why don't you go there? I said, okay. And so then the next day, he says, if you want to go to Vanderbilt, you got to get in the Naval ROTC because otherwise he'll draft you. He said, check on that. So I went to the high school, Haylong High School, 250 people at the time. And I went to the librarian, Miss Esther Cole, and asked her if she had any literature, and she uh, got to her desk, was full of stuff. And we found the application for Naval ROTC, and we looked at it, and it was a week too late to apply. So I came home that night and put down, and Dad said, uh, what'd you find out? And I said, we're a week too late to apply. And my mother said, well, why don't you go to Annapolis? I said, okay. <laughs> and the Dad looked at me and said, you think about it for a month. And if you want to go, we'll see what we can do about getting you an apartment. Well, I'm sure it was a month went by, exactly. I hadn't given any thought at all. And so he said, have you thought about it? Since I didn't have anything else to say, I said, yes, uh, yeah, Dad, I really want to go. Next thing I know, I'm in high school, and the loudspeaker calls my name and says, report to the principal's office. So I, not, not a good sign. So I went down there, and, and lo and behold, there was the, the sheriff. His name was Flo Fleming, and he's the he when he finished the navy, he got out of the navy. My dad had helped him in his politics to become sheriff. So he, I walked down there, and he, he was about five foot three or four, 
and uh, shook hands with him. He said, I understand you want to go to Indianapolis. I said, yes, sir. He said, you ever been arrested? I said, no, sir. He said, I think you'll do just well, which was the best interview I ever had. <laughs> so anyway, I couldn't go that year. He didn't have an appointment, but I went to Vanderbilt for a year and took engineering so I didn't have to take the exams, which was a good idea because by high school, uh, education at uh, Halong, especially in science and so forth, uh, was not very thorough. So the only thing that got me through my first year at the Naval Academy was the year taking basically the same things at Vanderbilt. And from there on out, uh, I, I won't jump ahead. That's why I decided I wanted to go into poetry. I'll, I'll let you talk for a while. <laughs> so you, you got your appointment then to the Naval Academy. Uh, do you remember who the congressman was that got you your appointment? I do. His name was Pat Sutton, and he was from Lawrenceburg. And uh, he was uh, he, he later challenged uh, Chief Offer for Senate. And, of course, was defeated. And then his family got involved some way in some sort of counterfeiting thing. So he he didn't shine too well. But he was the guy that gave me my appointment. So you end up going off to Maryland. What were your first impressions of Annapolis, uh, this this boy coming out of Murray County, Tennessee? What, what was Annapolis like for you when you first arrived? Well, I, I they put me on the train at Union Station. I got there and spent a night at one of the hotels. Caught a bus down to Annapolis the next day with several other people that would become my classmates. And I noticed that uh, some of them were wearing uh, caps or hats, Navy hats. And I didn't realize what kind of uniforms people had because I knew nothing about the Navy. And I found that a number of people in in my class had been uh, uh, enlisted in the Navy or the Marine Corps. And And it turns out that over the period of four years, our class started off with 800 and some and shrunk down to 636 because many of the people who were serving as enlisted, uh, as soon as they were picked to go to the Naval Academy, uh, they resigned and, di- and didn't have to go back uh, to sea or to the Marine Corps. Were you prepared academically? So was, I, I was, simply because I went to Vanderbilt for a year, for four quarters, and took the uh, all the engineering courses that I did not have in high school in math. The service academies are, are a sort of a different breed of, of college, however. Besides academics, you have to worry about things like uniforms and neatness and acting a, a certain way and discipline. How did, you, how did you cope with all of those things? Well, it, 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 it was uh, to be a plebe in any of the academies. It depends on how you act. I mean, if you keep sort of a low profile, then it's not that bad. I mean, they uh, they ask you questions, and they used to have fun with telling me, uh, stand up and say, I'm, I'm Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy, sir. And, I, and everybody would laugh, and I'd sit down. Well, that was easier than some of the other things I would have to do. So, no, I got through okay, and uh, I went out for uh, uh, crew. We had, that was uh, right after Navy had won the Olympics and, and crew. And, uh, but I wasn't, I wasn't built to be an oarsman. You need to have long arms to, to do that. And then I played, uh, box lacrosse, uh, on, on the company level and basketball and softball. I was not, I did not, uh, enter into any intercollegiate uh, athletics at the academy. 
At what point in your education did you decide that you wanted to be a pilot? Well, the our, our, the end of our sophomore year, youngster years, we called it. It was called aviation uh, weekend for for two months. We did the certain things. We, they had airplanes across the the Chesapeake, the the river, Severn River. They were going in three ends, and they were a uh, biplane and two 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 seats. And they were yellow. They call them yellow perils, and they were made at a factory in Philadelphia. And so, part of our training would be to catch a boat across the river and get in the back seat one of these airplanes. Uh, the seaman would get up with a crank and crank it up, and the instructor in the front seat would add power and push it down the ramp, and it float off of the the thing. And he he would add power, turning into the wind, and take off. And a very rude uh, instrumentation, and then they'd get up for a while, and they said, "Okay, you can take the take the stick." And I did that. And I said, "Gee, this is a lot of fun." <laughs> but then later on that same summer, they gave us a ride on the aircraft carrier Valley Forge, and one of the things we did was to get in the old World War II torpedo bomber, three or four of us, and we take off from the carrier deck and come back in and land and catch a wire and I remember looking down at the at the aircraft carrier and it looked like a matchbox I said hmm I don't know that I want to do that so that's when the time came I decided I wanted to fly but I thought I'd rather fly off concrete and that's why I chose to go in the Air Force as did 25% of my class and 25% of my contemporaries from West Point and this this went on for 11 years before the Air Force Academy started uh, producing graduates. As you said earlier, you suffered a tragedy while at the Naval Academy when your brother Ed was killed. Uh, did that have yeah. an impact on your time at the at the academy? It did in a way because he was killed right before Christmas, and of course we had a very uh, sad Christmas. And a lot of we had a lot of friends and family that came that out on the farm, uh, out in the open uh, field outside the, the small gate, uh, right before. With the Route 43, uh, a lot of people came, and one of the folks from a couple of folks from the church volunteered to come over and park their cars. There were so many people, but then I went back to the Naval Academy, and that summer I came home, and I said, "Dad, I, I decided I'm going to re- resign from the academy and come home and farm." I was feeling an obligation to do something since Ed had died, uh, although he he wanted to be a doctor, it would have been. And Dad said, where are you going to farm? I said, well, right here. He said, I'm farming here. And that was the end of that. <laughs> In other words, he was telling me, get your butt back there and don't worry. Keep doing what you're supposed to do. Your father had a, so some interesting words of wisdom. Uh, I should mention to the listeners that you've written an autobiography, which uh, I believe is unpublished at this point in time. It's wonderfully written, uh, and you have a number of quotes from your father, that being one. The other one that I remember that sort of stood out for me was uh, how your father felt about you flying. Uh, do you remember oh, yeah. what his quote was in reply? Well, yes. In fact, uh, uh, he, 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 he didn't like the idea I was going into pilot training. The two things when I graduated from Naval Academy, two things he didn't like was one, I was buying a car, and two, I was going to go into pilot training. And so I went through pilot training and so forth. And one summer we came home. I guess I'd been in the Air Force flying for about five years. And we came home. 
and my dad liked to look at crops. And so he was always asking, what do you think about the crops? Because he traded in certain things on the commodity market. And so one year, I came home, and of course, the, the Murray County Airport was just a half mile or so south of us, where I, when I was growing up, occasionally I managed to get a ride in one of the prop airplanes, or Washington airplane or something. And I said, Dad, I said, I've been flying for five or six years, and I'm pretty damn good at it. And I said, why don't I go down there and and rent an airplane and take it up, make sure I know what I'm doing. I'll come back and pick you up, and we'll fly around and look at crops. And he said, huh, just because I raised a fool don't mean I turned into one. So that was the <laughs> end of that. <laughs> On that note, we're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with General Armstrong. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we're talking to Lieutenant General Spence Armstrong, a native of Murray County, who would go on to a stellar career uh, as a pilot and an executive at NASA. General Armstrong, where we left off, uh, you were just finishing up your time at the United States Naval Academy. During your first year class, you had an opportunity to meet Senator John F. Kennedy. Can you tell us about that? Well, the, what they did for each, each class, a uh, company at a time, would go over to, uh, to D.C. and have a meeting with your, and you would meet with your, the congressman who appointed you, and then they all got together and met with some senator. It turns out that JFK was the guy that we met with, and this was like 55. So he had not assumed much of a, of a notoriety by that time, but we were impressed with him because he was straightforward and and treated us as, as equal. Yeah. You graduated with distinction from the Naval Academy. About where were you number wise in your class? Do you remember? Yeah, I was. I was uh, I, the top ten percent were distinguished grad, uh, grads, and I think there was one guy who made distinguished grad. He was a little bit lower than me, but I was not. Uh, I, I was not a real whiz bag there, but I did graduate with distinction, barely. Uh-huh. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, you decided not to stay in the Navy, but to become an Air Force pilot. Um, after 60 days paid leave, uh, you reported to primary flight training in Arizona. What types of planes did, did you get to train in? Well, uh, Morale, Arizona was where I went, and it's uh, it had been a World War II base, and uh, they, it, it was a uh, civilian pilot train. They had, they had a few uh, military uh, officers there as check pilots and commanders, but by and large, the uh, instructors we had were former World War II pilots, uh, crop dusters, and so forth. And the, we, we lived in the barracks there, those of us who weren't married, uh, with uh, ten to a, a, a building. And uh, we were far enough away. We would go to Tucson for the weekend and uh, kick up our heels. But uh, pilot training, we had 75 grads from West Point who were our contemporaries and 55 of my classmates. And we were all had the same data rank except one guy who'd been an ROTC guy. So he was the class commander, which really didn't make any difference. But we had the worst record of uh, 
washouts, of accidents, automobile, and so forth. And it turns out that I got the impression that after being locked up or uh, held down for so many years, people just didn't know how to act on their own. So when that was when I finished, I finished high enough that I could have my pick. And so I decided I wanted to go someplace where I could get away from uh, a, a Naval Academy part and uh, and get on with the Air Force. And so there was one other guy that was going with me this is to Greenville, Mississippi. And I told him, I said, Tom, when we get there, I want to change my name. I, don't, I want to be known as Spence, not as Sam, the nickname I picked up at the Academy. He said, fine. So we met there at a hotel in Greenville, Mississippi, and went out to the base the next day. And lo and behold, here are some of the people coming had come from other uh, primary pilot bases who were classmates of mine. And it was, hey, Sam, how have you been? So I never, I, that didn't, that, I didn't shake the name and never have. <laughs> it was at Greenville Air Force Base in Mississippi where you got your, where you earned your wings. Um, That's correct. How, how did that feel? Well, it was uh, something I really wanted to do, and I wanted to, you know, get my wings, but I wanted to go ahead and do other things. I had a choice of what I wanted to do. You could either go to to interceptor training, which at the time was the premier thing where people go to interceptors and be stationed all over the United States to intercept uh, Soviet airplanes. And the other thing that you could go through was tactical air command, uh, which I chose. And that's a very different kind of flying. Intercept of flying, your airplane starts with an F, but it's straight and level and using radar to pick up uh, uh, intercept, at getting a, uh, a heading from the ground. But the uh, flying tactical airplanes with bombing and strafing and, and uh, form a close formation and acrobatics it was a very different thing, which suited me, and that's what I did. You left Greenville and went back west again to Arizona, where you trained on F-86s, uh, Sabres. F-86, right. It, it was at Williams Air Force Base, and I flew F-86s there. That was uh, it, it, it was a re- it was a leftover from the Korean War, but it was a great airplane. It didn't have any two-seaters for training. So the first flight that you had, you were in an airplane by yourself. But it was it was the last airplane I think that I felt like I didn't get into, but I strapped on my back. I thoroughly enjoyed the F eighty six. And from there we went to I was went to Nellis uh, Air Force Base to check out the F one hundred, the Super Saber. What was memorable about that aircraft? Well, we had uh, we at there we had F one hundred F, which was a two seater with a slightly different uh, tail on it. And then we had F-100As, which had no flaps. And uh, the F-100A with no flaps had a higher landing speed. And then we did a lot of dogfighting with it, but you could get a compressor stall very easily if you pulled too many Gs at the wrong airspeed. And you would get a compressor stall that would blow your feet off of the rudder pedals. It felt like you dropped a... a, a Ten tray in the di- in the mess hall. I mean, it, it, but as soon as that happened, you sort of forgot what you've been planning to do. So we checked out in that. Then when I went to Myrtle Beach later on, uh, we flew the uh, another model, the D model, which uh, was 
is less prone to compressor stall. So both of those assignments, the one in Arizona and then in Nellis in Nevada, those were both uh, for training purposes. Your first real assignment as a pilot was in Myrtle Beach in, I believe, 1958, assigned to the 356th Fighter Day Squadron. Uh, what kinds of aircraft were you flying there? It was the F-100D. It was called a Fighter Day Squadron. It still had the uh, mission, uh, uh, whatever it was, but mainly having fun. And then they decided, well, we ought to put these folks to use. And since the airplane was capable of carrying a nuclear weapon, a 1.3 megaton nuclear weapon, then we, we learned how to uh, deliver nuclear weapons with an over-the-shoulder maneuver. And so we spent three weeks the squadron deployed down to Matagorda Island off Texas, and we did a number of these uh, flights where we'd come in at 500 knots and pull up with 4Gs and had it set so that the, the bomb, which was, in this case was practice bomb, would come off at a certain angle, and then you'd roll over on your back and go back the way you came. We used to call them uh, idiot loops. But we did that, and a whole bunch when we got where we could do it. And when we got back, we found out that one of our sister squadrons had been called up to go to uh, Turkey because of the Lebanon crisis. And we just barely had, by that time, we had all had a little bit of in-flight refueling training. And so our sister squadron took off. They got the times wrong. Uh, they were going for the tankers, and they were late. So the tankers rolled in the, the hoses on some of them because they didn't have enough fuel for them. And so there were eight of them left, and they headed for the Azores for the next refueling. And four of them uh, had were not together because when they went in the clouds with the tankers, the tankers separated as they did. So when they came out the other side, had these four guys who just had a heading, didn't have any navigation, but had a heading, but they didn't know how long they'd been on a different heading because the tankers had changed, uh, diverted their headings enough so to avoid a collision. And so the four of them, there were four together, and they went all the way and got fuel and over the Azores and landed in Turkey. And much to the surprise of the SAC crews who were there wondering what the hell's going on. But the four guys who would... With Lindbergh and across, there were two of the roommates, and one of them go on the microphone and says, uh, "If they, I'm turning. If anybody asks Tom, I'm turning left, and then or Mayday, Mayday, I'm turning left." Well, anyway, they these four guys who were going by themselves picked up a, a volcano on the end of the Azores and were able to get into the Azores and had something like, oh, you know, ten minutes of fuel left at most. But uh, that was the first experience where we had of deploying, but turns out that deploying overseas for various missions was what we really did. Right. Yeah, part of your duty with the 356 was to pull four months of duty in Aviano, Italy. What was your mission there? Same way, setting alert, uh, setting alert uh, with bomb, with targets uh, inside the Iron Curtain. We didn't have enough fuel to make it all the way into the Soviet Union. But there were a number of targets. I remember that some of these targets didn't seem like they were worth doing uh, in Hungary and so forth. But we knew that if we ever went and we dropped one of these 1.3 megaton bombs, 
chances are we're going to be blown up with it. Or even yet, if one of your buddies was after another target and he released first, you'd get blown up by his pass. So fortunately, we never were committed on that. But yes, we did that at Aviano. I did it for a month in Spangdahlem, Germany. And um, it, it, was a, it was a good mission. Uh, fortunately, we never did have to uh, uh, deploy because it, it was a one-way trip. After three years of flying uh, F-100s, uh, 100Ds, as you said, you decided to pursue a graduate degree uh, and went to the University of Michigan. What was the reason and what was your end goal uh, for pursuing those degrees, well, those advanced the, degrees? Well, the Air Force took pride in being the most advanced academically uh, of all the services. So they had a policy, I'm not sure if they were written down, that they wanted their pilots to get advanced degrees. And so uh, I was selected to be one of those. And I, we'd just gotten married. Uh, I got married in 1960. And the next summer, we we went to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I took aeronautical engineering. And I got two master's degrees in engineering. Uh, once again, my Naval Academy background was great in some ways, but, you, but it had a lot of uh, naval gunnery and stuff like that, but not too much in the way of aerodynamics. And so it was not easy to to work my tail off to do that. And you asked, what was my objective in going there? Well, my objective was to get a couple of degrees without uh, flunking out. And we had uh, I, I, daughter Lisa while we were there, and then we had another child who was born, uh, stillborn, before we went off. Right. But uh, I had wanted to be an astronaut, and we can talk about that at some later time, but at this point in time, having uh, my flying time and having two master's degrees in, in engineering, I was in pretty good shape. Uh, that was actually going to be my next question. This is the time of really of the birth of the uh, space program and the beginning of the space race against the Soviet Union. When when did becoming an astronaut enter your mind as a possibility? Uh, well, I guess the Sputnik was in 58. And nobody realized that it was going to be humans uh, going into space. But the first the first few launches, suborbital, uh, and then John Glenn, uh, I was actually at uh, Ann Arbor when John Glenn made his uh, circling flight. And I thought I'd like to do that too. Uh, but I was, I was about 10, about six years too young for that because they had already picked the people and most of those people were uh, five or six years older and had more experience. But the chances of getting right into it were pretty slim. But in order to get into that, you needed to go to the Aerospace Research Policy, which is the test policy. And that's what I wanted to do. That was my objective. And, and so your next assignment was Holloman Air Force Base near Alamogordo, New Mexico, uh, in August of 63. What was your assignment there? Well, I was, I was sent as an engineer, guidance and control engineer. That's what I'd been trained in. And so while I was there, I managed a, a program to certify the, the computer, backup computer for the Titan III. And so I spent a year uh, testing that computer with all sorts of things, with, with uh, centrifuge testing, sled testing, and so forth. And and that's what I did. I, I did get to fly, but not as a not as a line pilot. Wherever I could snivel a flight, I would take it. 
And so I did get some flying in, although I was not a primary flying job. But you were able to maintain your flight status throughout that time. I was. And uh, to maintain my flight status, although I was not flying high-performance airplanes at that time. Sure. They had F-100s there at Holloman in flight test. But uh, that was reserved for the guys who were test pilots, who had already graduated as test pilots. So I didn't get to do that. Although later on when I came back, I did. Right. By this time, you were hoping to enter the uh, Aerospace Research Pilot School to become a test pilot, uh, which was located at Edwards Air Force Base? Correct. And you described the experience. You said the other pilots in the class, this was the most competitive group you had experienced so far. About half of the pilots in your class had master's degrees, uh, so highly educated, uh, pretty experienced pilots. What was the curriculum like? Well, the first half of the first half of the year we did on basic stability control and performance, which was standard for the test pilots forever. The second half of the year, the Air Force tried to put some sort of space into it, and it was the aerospace thing. We flew the F-104 and the F-106. We did two maneuvers, and we did other things to give us some taste of actually space. Uh, we had a simulator. Space simulators, you can actually do docking. Uh, it, it was a touch of what it would be like to be in space, although the, the part that was the one that I enjoyed the most, I think, was just basic learning basic uh, aerodynamics and stability control. Describe the Zoom flight. Well, the Zoom flight, uh, once again, we did that to give us some simulation. And at the school, we had F-104s. Uh, A-model F-104s and a couple of B-models, the two-seaters, that had been bought by the Air Force to be used interceptors. And because they had such poor radar capability, they were turned over to other folks like we had them there at the school. And you could go Mach 2 in it. And with a spacesuit on, you could go up uh, and enter the supersonic corridor up towards uh, Las Vegas and head down and go into afterburner and get it, get Mach 2 and then make a 45-degree pull-up. And then at some, not long thereafter, the afterburner would blow out, and then the engine would start to overtemp, so you shut it down, and then you'd have to bunt over the top at around 76,000 feet. So coming down at 60,000 feet, you put the throttle back to military, and hit the two igniter buttons and see if the if the engine would restart. If it didn't restart, then you had to dead stick it into the uh, uh, dry lake bed there by the Edwards. It always did restart, but you had to time your pull-up and your whole flight so that if it didn't start, you could uh, have enough altitude to glide with the F-104. had very short, stubby wings, and somebody said it, it glides like a... B4 bag of bowling balls. It just wasn't much of a glider. But we practiced it. Uh, we practiced uh, simulated uh, dead stick landings and got fairly good at it. And so we did that. And we had to, of course, you had to wear the uh, face suit. That was your only protection because your time of useful consciousness above 50,000 feet was something like seven or eight seconds. So if, you, if your suit didn't inflate, you didn't go. And once your suit was inflated, uh, these old spacers were so bulky that 
had a hard time reaching around to shut the throttle down or do anything else in the cockpit. And as soon as you, as soon as you dump the cockpit pressure within the suit on the way in, the suit would inflate, and that would cause the helmet to rise up, and so you couldn't see out of it. So you had to reach in, pull the lanyard, and pull the helmet down so you could see out of it. And uh, that was that was the size of it at that time. It was later on that we had those with the rocket and the tail, which is another story. What's uh, do you remember? What's the highest altitude you ever reached? Well, later on, when we had the ones in the uh, with a rocket, six thousand pound rocket in the tail, uh, and with reaction controls, at the highest we were limited to uh, forty five degrees climb angle and uh, eight degrees angle of attack, and the highest I got was one hundred seven thousand feet doing it in two different flights. What does the sky look like at a hundred thousand feet plus? Well, if you can remember to look outside. You can see the curvature of the Earth, and you can see a sort of a blue glow on the horizon. Now, you're not going to be there very long, so take a look at it, because the next thing you got to do is get back down. Right. But uh, we we all we reminded everybody to take a look out, because that's the best view you're ever going to get uh, of the contour of the Earth, unless you go up in, in space. What's the fastest speed that you've, you've flown? Well, I, at Mach 2, which is... Uh, the Mach 2 is, depends on your altitude and, and atmospheric conditions, but it's basically 1,300 miles an hour. We're going to have to stop here uh, and take our final break, and uh, we'll come back right after these messages on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome back to History's Hook. Today we have the great honor of having Lieutenant General Spence Armstrong joining us to talk about his career uh, in the United States Air Force uh, and with NASA. General Armstrong, with uh, uh, your descriptions of your flying and your training, uh, this is going to sound like an understatement, but... It seems like this was extremely dangerous. Uh, well, it was, and we, we lost. I lost friends along the way, and um, everybody understood that there was a danger there. But you had to have the uh, the attitude. Well, it can't happen to me. If you worried about it, uh, you would have an accident. It's sort of like in football. If you worry about getting hurt, you never mount anything. You have to play, and so if you're going to be a fighter pilot, or especially a test pilot, you have to realize that there's certain things that can go bad, but you have to say, well, it can't, it can't, it can't happen to me, and you go on. How did your wife handle the potential danger? Remarkably well. In fact, I worried sometimes she really loved me that much. She didn't worry about me. <laughs> no, she didn't. She, she never worried about me, not even when I was flying combat. She, never, she said, well, you're a good pilot, I'm not worried about you. Well, that's true, but there's certain things that good pilots can't control uh, that go wrong with the airplane or get shot at. I mean, there's certain things. That being a good pilot is a great help, but it's not a uh, insurance policy per se. Certainly not. You mentioned that you lost a, a number of friends and uh, uh, a lot of aircraft during the time that you were training Hal Rogers is one of the friends that you mention in your autobiography. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Hal Rogers and I, 
I, I ran with Hal Rogers when I got to Myrtle Beach. He was a year ahead of me, at the, at the and he graduated from Citadel. He was from down in uh, Anderson, South Carolina. And uh, we, my first deployment to Aviano, uh, he was he was flying an F one F one hundred. I was going out to the gunnery range to be the gunnery officer out there. I was in a jeep, and I saw two airplanes take off. They had green tails, so I knew there was our squadron. And as they pulled up, one of them kept going, and the other one pulled pulled up higher. And I saw the canopy come off, and I saw the shoot the uh, the seat come out, and then I saw the chute open, but it was very low on the horizon. So I can I went driving on out to this gunnery range, which was in right by there. When I got there, I found that that Hale's chute uh, uh, had opened, but it was tight. It was the way that the, he had the oxygen connected, and it caught it caused the seat to fall down and collapse the parachute. So he hit the ground hard enough to to kill him, but uh, it was somewhat eased by that. So when I got there, I was the first one there, and I saw him and realized that he, he was gone. And so I, I took off my flight jacket and covered him until people could get there. And so it was a matter of taking care of his uh, things and sending them back. And fortunately, there was somebody else who was able to receive it at the Myrtle Beach Inn. As you mentioned, you lost a few friends during your time in the military. Did it ever give you second thoughts as to getting back into a cockpit? Uh, no, it never did. Never did. Uh, I was looking forward to it every time. Hmm. And I, over my period of time, I flew uh, 50 different kinds of airplanes and enjoyed all of it. So no, I never had that now. Today, I would be a little bit anxious to go up in something that was a little risky right now because maybe I've already used up all my good fortune. So maybe <laughs> I would maybe I would rely on my past and not worry about setting anything new. After your time at Edwards uh, as a test pilot, you were assigned back to Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico as the chief of the F-106 Service Evaluation Test Program. The Delta Dart was an interceptor aircraft designed to scramble and intercept incoming aircraft. Uh, you'd not been trained uh, really so much heretofore as an interceptor pilot. Uh, how did how did that make you feel? What what was that assignment like for you? Well, I, I had to teach myself how to do the radar because you had an onboard radar, and, and fortunately, we there in Holloman, uh, there was a hill out there that had a, a reflector on it, and so you could sit in the simulator and learn how to lock onto it. And so I taught myself how to do it, and uh, not an expert like those who did it all the time, but it was good enough for me to do the flying where we were testing out those systems. And uh, so I, I enjoyed that. And later on, I did the in-flight refueling test of the F-106. I think that's also indicated in the story. Right. And I think it was at this time that you were accepted accepted into the space program, specifically the Manned Orbital Laboratory Program. Uh, talk to us about the training First of all, how did it feel getting into the space program? Is something something you'd been working hard towards uh, for quite some time? And then, what what was the training like? Well, uh, when I got to Holloman as a test pilot, they just Air Force just announced that they were accepting applications for the second class of the manned orbital laboratory and the third class of Apollo 
and you could make an application, and you could put down either the Air Force or NASA or either. Well, I put down either, and I I didn't know enough to figure out that since the Air Force took the applications, that they were going to pick who they wanted, and if the Air Force didn't pick them, when it got to NASA, chances are they would say they've been passed over. So I said both, and I was a, I was selected for the man to the laboratory. The 12 of us that were together for a year at the test pilot school, three of them realized this, and they applied for the Apollo program and were selected, and all three went to the moon. Hmm. Who are the so, three? Do you remember who the three were? Of course, yes. Uh, uh, Rusa. Uh, Stu Rusa, uh, Al Warden, and then the one who most famous was Charlie Duke, who walked on the moon with John Young. Right. And we and we're still friends. We still we still get together from time to time. Uh, Stu Rusa and uh, had died some years ago, and Al Warden died just a few months ago. Right. But the the Mandarbor Laboratory was uh, remind me what they what they're trying to do this afternoon is to go up in a um, unmanned aircraft and get in a uh, some sort of a vehicle, space station, or, or something that was circular. They had a lot of very highly classified detection gear, and so it was highly classified. And so basically, you weren't flying. You didn't need to be an astronaut. What you really need to be was a technician. And But anyway, I, I applied, and I'm glad I didn't make it because the program was canceled by Nixon uh, shortly thereafter. Tell us a little bit about the training that you had to go through. It's part of the Mandarbor Laboratory? Yes, sir. I, I never got through it. Ah. I mean, once I flunked, once I flunked the physical, then my, my objective after that was to get back on flying status, which I eventually did. Right. Yeah, you, you no, went through some training. psychological testing, though. Isn't that correct? Oh, that was, yeah, with psychological test. <laughs> seven days of testing. We had time for me to tell that story about the psychological test. Absolutely. Well, anyway, it was seven days testing down at Brooks Air Force Base, Aerospace Medical School. And one whole day was devoted to cardiovascular, and one whole day was devoted to psychological. So you had the roar shocks and those kinds of things. But then you had these interviews, and uh, I remember two of them specifically that I was I had a schedule. It was about ten or twelve of us that were going through the seven day course. Some of whom I knew, and um, I went to this one office and walked in. It's a very small office and a desk and a guy in a white coat sitting behind the desk. And he didn't introduce himself or anything. He just indicated me to sit down. So I did. And he slid a piece of paper, slid a sheet of paper across to him. He said, "I want you to tell me a story about what you see on this paper." I looked at it, it was blank. So I turned it over and looked at it, it was blank. So I looked at him again, and he said, go ahead. I said, okay. I said, once upon a time in Minnesota, there was this young boy that was in school, and he was sent home, and he got caught in a blizzard, and this aerial photograph was the last we ever saw of him. <laughs> well, that wasn't what they were looking for. <laughs> and then the next one I went to, uh, the guy said, okay, you're an interceptor pilot, probably flying 106s, and you're scrambled as a Soviet bomber coming in across the Atlantic, and your wingman uh, aborts, and you're told to fire, and you and you 
try to fire your rocket and it doesn't work, what are you going to do? I said, well, I checked my circuit breaker and set up for another pass. And then he said, well, suppose that didn't work. What would you do? I said, well, I would fly over the, the airplane and drop my tanks in his face, in his cockpit. Well, in that, what, would you ram him? I said, well, yeah, I suppose I would. He said, why would you wait so long? And I said, well, if there's one of these Soviet airplanes coming in, there's got to be others. And I suspect they need me in this airplane to make another sortie. That's the reason. Well, when I got ready for my debriefing, they said, well, we think you're capable of being a, going into space, but we think you're psychologically better prepared to be a co-pilot, not to, not to pilot in command. So I said, well, I guess the shrinks don't think I've got the good stuff. And so in the meantime, I found out I've been grounded. So I got through that. And then years, maybe two years later, in uh, uh, Southeast Asia, I found myself leading a flight of 31 other airplanes on the way into Hanoi. And I mused to myself, I'm sure glad these folks don't know that I'm not supposed to be doing this. <laughs> so that's just one of the anecdotes from, from what I found out. But at the time, what they were looking for for astronauts, they really didn't know what they were looking for. They were just, they were much experimenting to get data as anything else. Well, General, that brings your story up to the Vietnam War. It's at this time when the war is really starting to begin in earnest, and it enters your mind that maybe it's time that you got into it. You've been gracious enough to allow us to continue this story again in a second part which we're going to absolutely take advantage of. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today. We're going to look forward to uh, f following up with uh, a second uh, part to this as well. Uh, okay, you just you just pick the time. I'm pretty much available. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, okay. ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. On behalf of Barry Gidcombe, uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster.